What's up, everyone? This is episode 109 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Speaking of social media, some of you might have seen that I was at a card show this past weekend. Several of you stopped by my table and said hello, so I want to thank you for doing that because it was nice to be able to meet some of you and to put a face to the username, or I guess this is the COVID era, so I should say half of a face to a name. And uh, I also had several people bring some cards by just to show them to me. I always appreciate looking at rare pieces, even if I have no chance or, or no means to acquire them. So all in all, it made for a great weekend. Um, Enough about this weekend though, it's time to move on to today's show. I'm going to flip the order on you a little bit because my hobby headline and my main segment go kind of go hand in hand. So I'm going to start off with just one piece of mail, then I'm going to talk about the um, youth tag fiasco from Panini Absolute. You might have seen some things about that this week. And finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about the dangers of an exclusive NBA license. And before you get to thinking too much about that last part, I want to add a bit of a disclaimer. I like a lot of Panini stuff. I have a ton of Panini cards in my collection. There are some things that they've done really well. However, in any industry where there's a monopoly, um, that company, if they're not careful and if they're not responsible, well, then that company runs the risk of heading down a dangerous course. Well, I don't think Panini has been either careful or responsible lately. And I'm going to share some things that make me think Panini could be headed down a dangerous path. But if any other company had the license, you could probably plug them in too. So part of this will be the inherent dangers of a company having an exclusive license. It just so happens that Panini is that company right now. Just know my goal is not to bash Panini exclusively. Um, No pun intended. You'll want to stay tuned for that. But first, I want to talk about some mail. I had a number of pieces show up in the last couple of weeks. I haven't had time to talk about very many of them. I'll try to do that in the coming weeks. Earlier this week, I uploaded a video on my YouTube that showcased a couple of surprise packages from Tyler Sports Guy and Vintage Pacers. I think that's definitely worth checking out. Just search Wax Museum Podcast and you'll find that. But uh, I'm only going to talk about one piece on here today, and this was not something I set out to buy. That's what happens when you get a week off for spring break, but I was browsing eBay for lots, and I came across a lot of two slabbed cards from an antique store. And the title, you know, it was descriptive enough, but it could have been better. It contained two signed PSA certified cards of Marvin Bad News Barnes. One of them was his 1975 Topps rookie, which I'll keep. And the other was his 1976 Topps base, which I'll try to move to cover the price of the lot. And if you don't know anything about Marvin Barnes, you absolutely have to check out the ESPN 30 for 30 called Free Spirits, because it focuses on the ABA Spirits of St. Louis. Yes, that was the actual name of the team. It was a a play on uh, Charles Lindbergh's famous plane. But there's some really good Marvin Barnes stuff in this documentary. And I think my uh, favorite story involves him missing a flight for a game, 
I found the short version online from a newspaper called the Virginian Pilot, so I'm going to read it for you here real quick because I want you to get it um, straight from the source. So it says, after a particularly wild night in New York, he slept in and missed every night to where the spirits were playing the Virginia Squires at Scope. So Barnes chartered his own plane and arrived at Scope just before the game, a woman on each arm, his companions from the previous evening, and a bag of McDonald's burgers in his hand. He opened his full-length mink coat to reveal his spirit's uniform. Boys, he said, game time is on time. Benched for the first quarter, Barnes finished with 43 points and 19 rebounds. Now, um, unfortunately, Marvin had quite a few struggles with drugs that uh, really derailed his career, and it's hard telling what could have been, but I know Bob Costas was a St. Louis radio announcer, and he thinks that Marvin could have been an all-time great. Nonetheless, uh, Barnes passed away in 2014, and as far as I know, he doesn't have any certified pack-pulled autographs. I'd rather have the signed rookie anyway, so now I own something of one of the sport's more interesting characters of the 70s, and there were quite a few back then. All right, moving on to my hobby headline for this week and a rookie set that I definitely won't be buying. That's Panini Absolute Memorabilia. And earlier in the season, I talked a little about this year's hoop set and the new wording on the back of the rookie relics. It concerned me a little bit, but I was hoping it was just semantics and Panini was being cautious. Well, as more info and more products have come out, I realize it's probably a bit more than semantics. Um, enter absolute memorabilia as you'll see here in a moment the name of the set is a bit ironic these days so i would actually tweak it a little bit and call it panini absolution and some of you might be familiar with that term i guess it's more of a theological term but it basically means the formal release from guilt or obligation uh, in other words panini doesn't want to be held responsible for their cardboard sins in 2020-21 products and here's what i mean if you look at the rookie memorabilia cards, be it hats, pieces of basketballs, jerseys, patches, whatever, the back of the card says, the enclosed officially licensed material is not associated with any specific player game or event. And this is the same as with hoops. Now, on the other hand, veteran relics say, the enclosed game-worn used material is guaranteed by Panini America Incorporated. So that tells us they're differentiating stuff here. So we know... What specifically is game-worn? And if you remember, they they had an incident last year with Absolute Relics as well, and the wording where they had to black out where it said, and autograph, because the cards weren't actually signed. So let me emphasize here, they are paying attention to what the back of the cards say. They're very intentional, um, and they're ensuring that those are accurate. So... If that wasn't concerning enough, a pair of Cole Anthony Jumbo hat tag cards showed up last week, and the hat size uh, was a youth large. I don't personally own any youth hats, but my first thought was, that's not going to fit Cole. There's no way that that's even player worn. Now, I don't have any way to verify what size um, hat he wore. I tweeted him, no response. I actually watched some draft night footage at his house to see if I could see a tag on the hat as they were handing it to him. I couldn't, uh, but you might be able to see where I'm going with this. And and I know it's dangerous to assume something is happening when you don't see it firsthand. Um, I want you to know today, I'm not being careless about this at all. I exhausted every 
source that I possibly could. And without actually being there, I still feel pretty confident that the evidence speaks for itself. Cole Anthony is not um, possessing, wearing, um, or owning these hats in any capacity. Um, so for example, you know, let's look at the evidence. I assume that this hat would never fit on his head, but I still sought out a sizing chart so I could get a rough idea of how big it actually was. There are different styles of new era hats. According to the jumbo tags I've seen, Panini used a style of hat called the 940, and I found a sizing chart. A 940 youth size hat on the larger end appears to be somewhere between 21 and 22 inches. And for those of you that wear fitted hats, that's like a six and three fourths or a seven. Well, I don't have a very large head, and I don't, uh, I don't have any hair really that's going to take up more space in that hat, and I'm still a bigger size than that. I think it's safe to assume that a professional athlete with um, a lot of hair is going to need a bigger size as well. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. I reached out to two contacts I have in the industry. I'm not going to name them on here, but they're very much in the know on what usually takes place at Panini. And here's what they had to say when I asked them about the likelihood of Cole Anthony wearing a stack of youth hats for Panini. The first person said, My issue with this card is that he definitely isn't a youth size hat, and these materials are not worn, issued, tried on, or anything. Okay, so remember now, this is just an opinion, but it's a very informed one at that. Um, I got a little lengthier of a response from person number two. He said, I think for this year, it's probably not likely the players wore anything. In normal years, they have a rookie photo shoot in August, and they get the rookies to try on gear. Because of COVID, the NBA has not allowed access to the player to any partners. I assume all of that stuff this year has not been worn or touched by the player players. However, they may have sent the items to the players to try on when they sent the card stickers to the players to be signed. Sorry, man, I cannot say 100%, but my guess would be that they have not worn them. So like I said, I value the opinions of both of these people. Um, on top of that, then, we saw a Justin Herbert card in football that had some sort of a tag that said women's right on it. I mean, it used to be that all rookies would wear a giant jersey or in some cases even pile them on all at once. You know, we've all seen that famous picture of Mark Ingram at an old Tops event. He's got to be wearing at least 10 jerseys in that photo. But even with Panini's basketball rookies, you'd see 5X and 6X tags and from little guys like Joe Young, because they're trying to get as many jerseys on that player as they can, as big of jerseys as that on that player as they can, so they can use all that material throughout the course of the year. Well, now it looks like they're just going with whatever materials they can find for cheap, because the players aren't actually wearing them. So including stuff that these actually these athletes could not reasonably fit into. Um, so I guess now these cards are more akin to little manufactured artwork pieces with random relics. Um, I saw the Herbert example. I mentioned that earlier, but I saw it a week or two ago and it didn't bother me. So I didn't really mention it on a previous episode. It didn't bother me because A, it's football and B, we've seen so many shenanigans in football that we've just come to expect it. Between the Kaepernick patches they mislabeled as game worn, the Mitchell and Ness tags, and using game-worn, um, or I'm sorry, player-worn for longtime veterans like Philip Rivers, you could say that their football relic history has been a comedy of errors. Basketball, 
is a different case, though. And I had a couple people comment on my Twitter that these kind of shenanigans should just be expected with Panini, but I think they, that Panini has really done a pretty good job with their basketball relics. All of their early um, season rookie stuff is usually labeled player-worn because it's from the photo shoot. Once we get to Flawless, you might have some rookie stuff that's actually game-worn, and they label that as well. And then, um, with the exception of some of the retro sets and a low-end set here and there, all of the veteran stuff is game-worn. Um, a lot of the retired player stuff is purchased from the big auction houses, and I've traced some of those back on this show before. You might remember I talked about a Mark Jackson patch and a Horace Grant logo man that I traced back. Um, you know, in basketball, you've got the rookie photo shoot, you got 82 games per season, you got preseason, you got playoffs. Some guys wear multiple jerseys per game. Some guys wear jerseys over multiple games, but there's a lot more game-worn stuff available in basketball than in football. Um, In short, we didn't see Panini cutting corners on that kind of stuff in the past because it was readily available and they didn't have to. And I talked about this with Tone um, in episode 60 and 61. So I'd always encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it or or maybe you want to listen to it again. Um, However, when situations get tough, in this case, we're in a pandemic and there's no competition for Panini. And there's no one to hold them accountable. Well, some companies are going to bend a little bit when it comes to ethics. And as you'll see shortly, I'm going to build more on this thought in today's main segment. But I think there's enough evidence now to show that Panini is bending a bit when it comes to ethics. But before I continue that thought in today's main segment, I want to pause and take a moment to remind you how you can support this show As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support this show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link or the eBay logo at the top. Shop as planned and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so today's main segment is an idea I've been kicking around for a while now. I actually had this queued up for episode 79 and something else came up. Well, the absolute hat fiasco more or less forced my hand. Because Panini is showing us firsthand the dangers of when a card company holds an exclusive license. And I'd like to try and lay all of that out for you today. I want to talk about how we got to an exclusive. I'm going to talk about how Panini has, at times, been irresponsible with their license. And I want to touch on how that affects NBA cards going forward. So, real quick, I know I covered this in episode 1 and in episode 54, but how did we get to an exclusive license? This is still a question that I see all the time, be it on social media, blowout forums, Reddit, wherever. Um, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but here's an abbreviated timeline. So the card market in the 2000s was uh, not great, right? We started the decade with Fleer, Upper Deck, and Tops. Well, eventually Fleer went bankrupt and Upper Deck bought a lot of their assets. So that left us then with two. 
in 2008, Tops and Upper Deck were entering the final year of their agreement with the NBA. At the same time, Panini, who really was more of an international sticker brand, they approached the league and they indicated that they were interested in getting into basketball as well. Now, the story from the NBA side is that the NBA, Tops, and Upper Deck all agreed that an exclusive was probably the best idea moving forward. But, like I said, that's the NBA side. Everyone involved has their own version. I'm wondering if Panini's bid wasn't so big that the other companies knew they couldn't compete. And when I read the statement from Tops, that's the impression that I get. Because they said, we've had a strong relationship with the NBA, but the deal they made with Panini does not make economic sense for Tops. It may be great for the NBA, but the value wasn't there for us, and we've decided to invest elsewhere for the time being. Okay, so that was Tops' version. Now, here's Upper Deck's version. While Upper Deck is disappointed with the NBA's decision to grant exclusive trading card rights to a new licensee, they are reinforcing their commitment to producing the highest quality, most innovative, and value-rich basketball products. Okay, so in short, I think the NBA preferred to deal with one company, and Panini put up, which at the time, what was an insane amount of money to make a run at the license. Um, So Panini signed that exclusive in January of 2009, and then they turned around in March, and they bought Donruss to form Panini America. So um, Upper Deck and Tops were left to ride the rest of their contract out all the way through the end of the 2009 calendar year. Um, They had a large inventory of game-worn items to choose from, and they made a pretty crazy run of products on their way out. You might remember the run of 900-something Logo Man patches I talked about on a recent episode. Um, It was nuts. Okay, now that that's out of the way, I want to give some examples of Panini mishandling its license. And I'm not even going to detail distribution. Just know that's another major issue. I've talked about it before. I'm sure I'll talk about it again. But the bottom line is it's very hard for people that want products to get products. Some of it's demand. Some of it is the system and the people toward the top that have access to stuff. But I'm not going into all of that today. Instead, I want to talk about five other areas that I feel like Panini has really botched over time. And these are in no particular order. Okay, so number one that I want to talk about is redemptions. Some of you might remember that I did a recap of the redemption lawsuit way back in episode six. I'm not going to go over all of that again, but a lot of people feel like the redemption program has become a giant bait and switch. And, you know, the situation kind of looks like this. Panini promises that certain athletes are going to sign. They don't, or they take forever. Panini tries to put the onus on the athlete, but then they continue to put those same athletes in their products and sometimes even feature them on the mock-ups on the sell sheets, despite the prior issues. Um, Then they've decided to put expiration dates on redemptions, but they still marketed the old boxes with with the expired redemptions. And then they want to offer you half the value of those when you try to redeem them, or they have the they've replaced them with points, which you know it used to be it was hard to get a good value for your points, or it wasn't you know similar value. It was just a big mess. Um, I'm not going to say the situation's much better now. That's the short version. Okay, go back and listen to episode six if you want to find out more. But I'm going to move on to another area that I feel Panini has botched over time. 
and that is allowing quality products to slowly waste away. Um, when National Treasures Basketball first came out, and this is the 2009 season, it was a big deal. This was a legacy brand from playoff. And keep in mind, Panini, you know, they didn't have a real uh, basketball card history that they could, um, you know, partner with their new license. So they had to use an existing brand that maybe they had had in other sports. So National Treasures was already kind of a big deal, and this was a legacy brand. So they were carrying that over to the basketball set. Um, it was their highest end set, and it was pitched that way. They had on-card Kobe autos, which was a big deal. And for several years, this continued to be a pretty good product. Fast forward to today, and um, you know, I'm not saying that there's not good cards in there, but it's primarily two things. It's become a vessel to sell a chance at a nice rookie patch auto, and then it's also a sticker dump. And I feel like I've seen similar things happen with some other high-end products as well. Immaculate used to have some really awesome jumbo veteran patches. Now the majority of them are rookie patches from the photo shoot. The same thing happened with the nameplate nobility set. We used to get some really cool um, Hall of Fame nameplates and retired players. Well, now they're chopping those letters into smaller pieces and, and spacing them out a lot more. Um, and look, I get it. The market revolves around rookies right now, and that's nothing new. We've seen that's been a, a pretty consistent theme throughout basketball card history. They would be foolish if they didn't focus on these guys. In fact, I thought Panini should have done more with Zion than they actually did. Uh, very similar to what Upper Deck did with LeBron in 2003. But we've got to the point where they know that the combination of their Monopoly and the rookie class, um, that it's going to move any product regardless of quality. And a lot of the products have deteriorated because of that. They know they don't have to put the effort in to move a product because people are chasing rookies and people are willing to gamble. Um, what's going to happen when the market cools or when we get a lackluster class? Is Panini going to try then, or are they going to lean further on their monopoly and just ride it out until the next season? And that segues into my next point, which is um, they have been showing a, um, or not showing, I guess, the ability to innovate. There's a lack of real innovation. And um, I'll talk about the time frame of each license contract here shortly, but I don't think it's a coincidence that things slowly trended downward after Panini signed a five-year agreement around the 2012-2013 the season. Some of Panini's more innovative products, including one that was literally called Panini Innovation, released around that time. And while these products benefited from the double rookie class, the company was finding its groove and they really had to work hard to try new things to establish itself um, as a player in the market that it had not really spent any time in before. And we got a lot of cool stuff as a result. We got laser cut cards. We got stained glass. We got dual relics that rotated on a spinner in the card. Um, we had cards with fuzzy pictures of headbands. We had cards that showcased starting lineups. Um, it was all, a lot of really cool stuff. That's just scratching the surface. And in my opinion, the driving force behind this was because, one, um, it wasn't a given that they were going to move basketball cards all that well. You know, they actually had to work at it. 
And number two, it probably also wasn't a given that Panini was just going, um, I'm sorry, that the NBA was just going to hand Panini a license again. In other words, they tried because they had to. And I don't feel like we're getting that same kind of effort and that same kind of energy today. Even when Upper Deck signed Ben Simmons around 2016, uh, I believe it was the summer or June of 2016, I don't think Panini ever saw that as much of a threat. I don't remember them looking for any real creative solutions. They just doubled down on diamond cards and got lucky that Silver Prism took off. Um, Their legacy increased, their branding increased, because they were the only real game in town. That NBA license is valuable. People put a a high value on that. Um, And it's it's one of the reasons, you know, they're the only game in town. That's why I own a lot of Panini stuff. And, And some of it is good, but that's why I own a lot of stuff mainly. People tell me that I should only buy older stuff. Well, guess what? I'm a team collector. I want stuff from the new guys too. Okay, um, the next thing that I want to touch on is one that um, is particularly important to me, and that is their carelessness toward game-dated and historical materials. And there used to be a pretty good-sized offering of game-dated materials on the market. Off the top of my head, um, we had Innovation Statline, we had Preferred Statline booklets, we had Court King's Performance Art, we had Immaculate Special Events materials, And then, of course, some of the NBA final stuff, which I'll talk about in a little bit. There's something special about obtaining a memorabilia card, having the stats and a picture from that game on the card, and being able to look that video up online and see that clip in action. And, you know, Tops and MLB, we're talking current, have done a great job with this. A lot of the nicer pieces have a little MLB hologram that you can search online and it will give you information about the relic. Um, you know, I know I talked about innovation on the last bullet point, but with top shot and highlights being all the rage, you'd think Panini would come up with some sort of game dated cards that, you know, maybe they put a QR code on them and it redirects you to a video clip featuring that specific relic. Um, I think I saw, I think it was Ivan, AKA watch the breaks on Twitter that recommended that. I thought that was an awesome idea, but we're not going to get anything like that because unlike tops, who I mentioned has done a great job with this. Um, if we're looking at Panini's game-dated relics, stat line is gone, performance art is gone, special event materials has deteriorated into small little pieces of all-star warm-ups, the current game-dated selection is pathetic. Now, one thing they have maintained to an extent is their use of NBA Finals relics. They have the nameplates in National Treasures, one of the few good parts of that product, and then they have the opulence booklets. Now, granted, they used to do, when it was back in Preferred, they used to do 25 prime booklets per player, um, and a lot of that stuff has been drastically slashed. I think I saw some of the Raptors booklets numbered to nine. Might have been Kyle Lowry. So that begs the question, what are they doing with the smaller stuff? They have a Kyle Lowry NBA Finals jersey, in their inventory, someone that Raptors fans have dubbed the greatest Raptor of all time, and they make um, a nameplate set and then less than 10 booklets, and then some of those were even trim pieces that I saw. So where's the rest of that jersey, right? Or what about the Mark Aguirre Bad Boys Finals jersey that they used in 2014 Immaculate? They made 10 jumbo patches from it, 
and then we've never seen any Aguirre cards that are labeled as being finals worn since. What about the Spurs Tracy McGrady jersey that they used parts of for um, one booklet set, numbered to 25? Well, I've had a former Panini employee tell me that oftentimes the rest of the stuff, the NBA Finals stuff, gets cut up and inserted into other products. In other words, they're wasting historical artifacts in order to make unlabeled filler for miscellaneous products. They could bring so much more value to their brand and the NBA brand um, and customers in general with a few minor changes, and they just won't do it. Um, To me, that's irresponsible, and it's insane. But not as insane as number five, which is what I believe they're trying to do right now. Um, I believe they are trying to trick customers. I know that's that's a pretty serious accusation, but um, I, I really do believe that's what's happening here. And this goes back to the Cole Anthony situation that I talked about at the top of the show. And unfortunately, it's these kind of shenanigans that erode consumers' trust in any memorabilia cards from the last couple decades. I still have people tell me they don't trust memorabilia cards today. And then when I ask them why... Um, you know, what does it stem from? It's incidents that happened long before Panini America existed. So Panini is paying the price for the uh, relic incidents that have happened in the past with other companies. And likewise, any company in the future is going to run into the same thing. What Panini is doing now will follow them into the future. So if I work for the NBA, that concerns me. And I want to go back to this Cole Anthony thing one more time, though. Because when I posted about this on Twitter, someone suggested um, that someone should file a class action suit against them. Well, the problem here comes back to that whole absolution thing. The new wording on the back of the card absolves them of all legal issues with putting random, unworn jerseys in their cards. Technically, it's not illegal. But ethically, is it right to slip this stuff into an established set called Absolute Memorabilia? A set that's been known to have player-worn stuff in it for years. That's the whole basis of the set. A set that has already developed that reputation. They're clearly trying to trick customers here. It's legal, yet sleazy. No one is forcing you to make memorabilia cards during a global pandemic, and especially not a product that revolves around them. And all of this makes me think of that Jeff Goldblum line in Jurassic Park, where he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, Those five points I just went through involved Panini, but In the bigger picture, they're indicative of what could happen when you give any company an exclusive license. And I know I just got through a long list of concerns about Panini. I know, um, I also know that it benefits the NBA in some ways to deal with them. They really played up the global element, but Panini does have a lot of experience there. And I also figure that working with a single company is a lot easier than going back and forth with two or three. But I don't think monopolies are good in general, and especially not in the card world. Incidentally, a lot of people suspect that the current license expires in 2022, which is next year, of course. The card climate 
is a lot different now than it used to be. If the NBA is willing to move back to multiple licenses, I think now is as good a time as any. As you guys know, um, even the big chains can't manage to keep cards in stock. I think the demand is most certainly there. Um, both Tops and Upper Deck have shown a willingness to dip their toes back into the basketball waters. Tops had a chrome set they were trying to put out. They've had basketball players in Ginter as well. And then, of course, Upper Deck has had Supreme Hardcore and Goodwin and a number of memorabilia products. Um, not to mention they still have the rights to a couple of guys named Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last year. And back in September, I actually reached out to Tops and Upper Deck to see if they could point me to someone in marketing at the NBA. Well, I got crickets. Uh, from there, I did a deep dive on Google and discovered someone named Kate Javeri, who is the CMO. Um, I couldn't find any contact info for her, but I did find her on Twitter. I tagged her in a simple post and said I was trying to DM her. She followed me, I sent a DM, and I never heard back. Um, another name I'd like to get in touch with is Lisa Goldberg. I know she's the VP of licensing at the NBA and deals quite a bit with memorabilia and trading cards. If any of you have any connection to her, please reach out. I'd love to be able to chat with her at some point. Um, I don't want them to be fooled by the numbers right now. Panini, uh, yes, they're making money, but no, they don't seem all that concerned about longevity. Um, now, I don't expect to be able to reach out to someone and everything is magically changed. I'm more realistic than that. I'm a nobody that happens to really like cards. But I also think when a company starts to cross moral boundaries, it would be nice to get into the ear of someone that's in charge. Um, especially now that we're getting closer and closer to the end of this current licensing agreement. Well, maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you. Maybe you've been thinking some of these thoughts. Uh, maybe, you know, you're very happy with an exclusive license. Uh, or maybe there were some other concerns that I neglected to address. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people do it, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.